to all those tonight. We're so thankful for your presence, and especially those that are visiting with us. We had quite a few visitors this morning, and uh, some are back with us tonight, and we're glad to see you. And it really says a lot when we see those that are visiting that come back for our evening services and also our Wednesday night class as well. Tonight I want to, especially those that are watching online, thank you for being with us. We appreciate you as well. Thank you. Tonight I invite you to look with me, if you will, at Exodus chapter 6, as we'll be looking at Exodus 6, verses 1 through 8. Now, of course, the book of Exodus begins with the children of Israel in Egyptian bondage, and the Bible tells us that there arose a new king in Egypt that knew not Joseph. That's interesting, isn't it? That there would be a king that would find and rise up, and there, he would have no idea, no thoughts about Joseph and about what he had done while he was here on this earth. But God had said many earlier years to Abraham, the father of the Hebrew nation, that his people would sojourn in a strange land for some 430 years, and then God would bring them out, and they would enjoy redemption from slavery. And in the following chapters, God provides with us a very narrative of these events surrounding the calling of Moses, who would ultimately become the great leader and lawgiver of ancient Israel. And then we come to Exodus chapter 6, and God reminds or reassures Moses of his plans for Israel. And that's what we want to look at tonight. Sometimes we just need to be reminded, don't we? We need to be reminded. We need to have some reassurance about our salvation that God has given us. Now, the task before Moses and Aaron was monumental at this particular time. And yet God, through these men, would utilize them in, a, in great ways. The Egyptians would be plundered and Israel would be victorious. But notice with me as God reminds Moses or reassures him of that which is going, what he's going to do on behalf of his people. First of all, we notice that God said that he would provide freedom for Israel. That he would provide freedom for Israel. Notice with me verse 6 of Exodus 6. God said through Moses, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will rid you out of their bondage and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. They were enslaved in Egypt and God was going to bring them out and they, they, they would be a great nation, a great thing. And so there are some things that we ought to consider with regard to their enslavement in Egypt. And we begin by talking about the tremendous load that we find that was weighing upon the hearts of Israel in the long ago. Look with me, if you will, back up to verse 1 of Exodus 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. Go down to verse 4. 
And I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. When I think about the tremendous load that is weighing upon the hearts and the lives of ancient Israel, there are two words that comes to my mind. And first, it was their burdens. And then secondly, was their bondage. Listen again to what God said there in verse 5. And I have also heard of the groaning of the children of Israel. Did you know that God is very mindful of the plight of his people? Knowing that he is omniscient, that he's all-knowing. He knows what's going on. If you go back and you look at Exodus chapter 3, when God had called Moses, the text tells us in verse 7 of that text, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. God is very mindful of the plight of his people. He's omniscient. He knows all. He sees all. And we talk about the burdens and the bondage that God's people were experiencing then. But what about today? Do you think that God knows what we're dealing with in this world today? I know he knows. And I know that he knows that we are struggling, that we're, but we're striving as well to do all that we can one soul at a time to bring them to the Lord. God is mindful of these times as well. Did you know that Jesus said in Matthew 10, 29, that even a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without our Heavenly Father knowing it? And if that is true, then we know that God knows our situation as insignificant as a sparrow. I'm sure he's mindful of our plight here on planet Earth as well. In verse 8, the Bible says, And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good land and a large and into a land flowing with milk and honey. So God was mindful. He was mindful of the great load, the tremendous load that was weighing upon his people. I would remind you tonight that you might be experiencing the very burdens of life. The difficulties, the, the difficulties of life. But you're not alone. There are so many in our world today that are experiencing some of the same things or maybe even worse situations than what you might be dealing with. God is mindful of you. God is mindful of where you are in this life. But then there's a second thing that we can consider along these lines not only was ancient Israel under a, a tremendous load, but God says, I'm going to liberate you. I'm going to liberate you. I'm going to bring you out of this land. Listen to verse 6 of chapter 6. God said, Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and great judgments. Again, there are two key words, and the first is the term rescue, and the second is the term redeem. We know that the Old Testament was written for our learning, 
And there are types and shadows that we find in the Old Testament, and they link us to the New Testament. And when you look at the New Testament and the coming of the Messiah, Jesus came to do what? Well, number one, he came to rescue the people. But then number two, he came to redeem them as well, to rescue people from sin and unrighteousness. Jesus said, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 28. Not only did Jesus come to rescue us, but he came to redeem us by his blood. And that's exactly what he did, didn't he? That's exactly what he did. Over in Exodus 12. <coughs> we read about the institution of the Passover and the lamb that would be slain and the blood that would be offered and applied. But those who followed those instructions, their firstborn lived, and those who did not, their firstborn died. That was that tenth plague that was sent upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians and, and anybody that didn't put their blood, <laughs> applied that blood on the, the doorposts. But the Bible says that Christ today is our Passover lamb. And it says that he was sacrificed for us in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. The Bible talks about the redemptive work of Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah, our Savior. Paul wrote in Ephesians 1 and verse 7, he said, In whom, that is, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. No wonder Paul would say in verse 6 of that text, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. And so to know that God would rescue us, but then to know that God would also redeem his people. But there's another thing that we can see here in our study, that not only would God provide freedom for Israel, but notice he would provide fellowship for Israel as well. There is this personal relationship that Israel would enjoy with Jehovah God. Now we've talked about Egypt and many of the cities that are spoken of in the Old Testament, but those ancient cities, they were, they were filled with idolatry. And yet the God that they were talking about is not a pagan deity, but rather he is the God of heaven. He is the creator of the universe. And so these people would enjoy a relationship with the Lord. But look in verse 7 of our text, Exodus 6. And this is what he said. He says, and I will take you to me for a people. And I will be to you a God. And ye shall know that I am the Lord your God. Which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God is saying to these people, hey, look, you're, you're going to be my people. You are my people. Over in Exodus 19, God would uh, remind Moses what he did on behalf of ancient Israel. And, and he said in verse 5, he says, Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasurer unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. What God is saying here is that you're going to be not only my people, but you're going to be a special people. A special people. 
Somebody once asked the question, well, why did God choose Israel? Well, the short answer would be because he is God, right? He had that right to choose the right people. And I guess he chose them. But you see, God needed a nation. He needed a people to bring in the Messiah into the world. And so that nation was Israel. That's the only reason, really. And so they had a personal relationship that they enjoyed with God. But did you know that those of us who belong to the Lord, that we too have a personal relationship with God? You see, that was the physical Israel, the chosen people, that nation. But today, it's the spiritual Israel, that is the church, the kingdom of God, which is a spiritual nation. And we, too, have that personal relationship as his chosen people, as the church of our Lord. John writes in 1 John 3, 1, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we shall be called the sons of God. To know that we, or to know that God is our heavenly Father, the creator of the universe, but he is our God. Personally speaking, he is our God. He's my God. He's your God. But he's our Father. And so God was saying to Israel here, I will be your God and you will be my people. You want to talk about a unique relationship? This is it right here. A unique relationship enjoyed by a very nation of people to know that God lavished his love and care upon ancient Israel. That's exactly what he's done today. He has lavished his love upon the human family, his grace, his mercy, and love. For you see, God cares. God cares about the human family. So much so that he sent Jesus into the world that we might be able to enjoy that relationship with him. Paul said in, in Romans eight seventeen that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. As our elder brother. Did you know that when you obey the gospel. That you, that, you're, that you have a relationship. Or that your relationship to the world. It changes. You're no longer connected to the world itself. To the world of sin if you will. You're now in the world of righteousness. You're no longer enslaved to sin and unrighteousness. You're no longer under the bondage that Jesus talks about in John 8.44. The taskmaster. The ruler of the world who reigns in the lives of those who are in the world, that is the devil. You know, the devil is identified in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 as the God of this world. And so if, we, if we've hooked our wagons to the world itself, thus there's going to be trouble. The devil's got you. The devil wants to turn your hearts and your lives away from God. Paul says, but when we obey the gospel, that we are turning our hearts and lives to him through repentance and confessing his name before others. When we are immersed in that watery grave of baptism, we come in contact with the blood that was shed at, at Calvary's cross, thereby making it possible for us to enjoy that intimate relationship once again with the Lord. And then we're placed into the kingdom According to Colossians 1.13, where we are delivered out of the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And then he said, 
It's in that sphere that we enjoy the redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of Colossians 1.14. And so there's this very personal relationship that we have with the Lord. You know, it might be the case that one of the reasons that some people are not what they ought to be in the church is because they haven't developed and nurtured that relationship, that personal relationship with the Lord. How can I deepen my relationship to God? Well, I've got to spend time with Him, don't I? How do I spend time with God? Through His Word. Do I not spend time with God by reading and studying and meditating upon His Word? Looking deeply into the truths of Almighty God? You know, the psalmist of old said that he meditated on the law of Jehovah and the Bible both day and night. That's Psalm 1-2. You see, I deepen my relationship to God through prayer, spending time in prayer to Almighty God by engaging in those acts. It enables me to draw closer to God. Wasn't it James that said, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh unto you? Yes. You see, there are some people today, some people in the world, and maybe even some in the church, sadly, that have been married for years, but they've, they've drifted apart. The reason is, is because they haven't nurtured and worked on a daily basis to be able to strengthen that marriage, that relationship, to become more intimate with one another, to grow closer together. By the way, the Bible tells us in Romans 7 and verse 4 that if we are a Christian, we are married to Christ. So what does that tell us? If we're not where we ought to be in our Christian relationship, it's because we haven't nurtured and developed that personal relationship to draw closer to the Lord as we're married to Him. I think about ancient Israel and the personal relationship that they would enjoy with the Lord. But then there's another thing that comes to mind, and that is Israel would see and enjoy the great power of Almighty God. When we think about the power of God, how powerful is God? Oh, there are people today that, that have enormous strength. You hear in the news about the nuclear weapons and the potential destruction that they come as a result of the, the engagement of those weapons of war and destruction. But God is all-powerful. And ancient Israel, they were going to enjoy the power of God in their lives. You see, when I think about the power of Almighty God... We have to understand that Israel is serving Egypt. There is a pharaoh. There is a king in Egypt. He doesn't know the God of Joseph. He's made, his, he's made their lives bitter, extremely difficult as the children of Israel. And God is saying, look, I'm going to lead you out of this bondage. I'm not going to allow you to continue in that slavery, if you will. But listen again to what he said in verse 6. He says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm with great judgments. Numerous plagues, ten of them to count, would be the result of the stubborn and hard-heartedness of Pharaoh. Each of those plagues were directed at, at one of the pagan gods of the Egyptians that they served in Exodus 7 through 12. God was saying, I'm going to bring you out of that mess. You're not going to have to deal with that any longer. 
And ancient Israel would see that firsthand. In Exodus 19 and verse 4, God said, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. You see, you want to talk about the power of God? When God says that he'll do something on behalf of his people, you can mark it down. He's going to do it. I think we talked about it not too long ago, about the promises of God. If God made a promise, you can guarantee he's going to keep it. He always has. He always will. And then I think about not just his power. And we've talked about the byproducts of his power, but I think about the tremendous provisions as well. The protection that Israel enjoyed over in Exodus 13, we find in uh, verses 17 and following that God will lead the, the children of Israel by a pillar of cloud and by day and a pillar of fire by night. And they come out of that bondage and, and God is leading them. He's leading them every step of the way. Over in Exodus chapter 16, if you will, we find verses 1 through 3. And here, somewhat incredulous, but Israel begins to murmur against God of all things. Because in their minds, God had brought them out of Egypt so that they might die from hunger or starvation. But God said in verse 4 of that text, he says, Behold, I will rain bread. <laughs> Can you imagine He said, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And God fed those people with manna. He fed them with bread. You might remember in John 6 and verse 48 and following there, where Jesus had a a very lengthy discourse over the subject of the bread of life. And they referenced this bread that Moses gave them that came from heaven, right? And Jesus said, listen, Moses, didn't you give them that bread? You didn't give them that bread. God did. And so Jesus said, I am the bread of life. So here is God. He promises to bring them out of bondage. He does that. Then he cares for them. Did you know that even though with that murmuring and complaining, they wandered in that wilderness for 40 years, did you know that their shoes never wore out? Did you know that their clothes, their clothing never wore out? And yet they're going to murmur and complain. God always saw fit to give them the water from a rock, manna from heaven, quail. He took care of them. It's like looking the gift horse in the mouth, isn't it? God promises to bring them out of that bondage. He does that. He cares for them. What about us today? Do we not serve the same God. Is not God concerned about us? Well, yes, he is. Does he care about me? Yes. Is he interested in my welfare? Will God provide for me? You might remember in Matthew 6 and verse 25 and following with his Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus talked about the providential care of God on behalf of his people, he asked him in that context. He says, why do you worry? Why, why are you worrying What were they worrying about? Food, shelter, clothing. And so Jesus said three times, therefore take no thought. Do not worry. God will provide. You see, God will be for us, with us, just as he was with ancient Israel in the long ago. But then there's a third thing 
that I believe we see in our study, and it's found in Exodus 6 and verse 8. Let's go back to that, Exodus 6 and verse 8. And I want you to notice that God would provide a future for Israel. A future. I think about their freedom. I think about their fellowship. But then thirdly, their future. Israel had a great future before them, whether they realized it or not. There was this promise that was made to Israel that they might dwell in that land of Canaan. That was considered the promised land, right? But listen to what is recorded there in in verse 8 of our text, Exodus 6. And God said, I will bring thee, or I will bring you in unto the land concerning the which I did swear to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for an heritage. I am the Lord. God made a promise. He made a promise to this people, and that promise was, I'm going to bring you into a land that flows with milk and honey. (coughs) Milk and honey. Go back again and look with me just for a moment in Exodus chapter 3. And I want to look at verse 8 here. And listen to what God says here. Exodus 3 and verse 8. And I ain't come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of that land into a good land. And at large unto a land flowing with, here it is, milk and honey. Unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. God made a promise to Abraham, didn't he? And we can trace that promise all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Where God was instructing Abraham to get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make thee make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. The Hebrew writer speaks of the tremendous faith of Abraham. And the Bible says in Hebrews 11 and verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, notice, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. Here is absolute faith in God by Abraham. And so God made a promise to Abraham. In Genesis 15, he talks about this promised land that Israel would receive eventually. And it's in that context that he talks about <coughs> how the, his people would dwell in that land of Egypt. And for 40, 430 years, and then they would come out. You see, God is saying to Moses, look, what I promised to my people hundreds of years ago, he said, I'm now ready to fulfill that. I'm ready to allow you that opportunity. When we think about our relationship to the Lord today and the fact that we are benefactors of his great blessings, did you know that we have that promise today of the promised land? That heavenly Canaan land? That's right. Types and shadows. You see, Canaan signified a land flowing with milk and honey. Israel wanted that land. By the way, they received that land. Joshua 
tells us that they possessed all the land that God had promised to them. Joshua 21, 43. And in verse 45 of that text, Joshua said, There fell not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel. He said, All came to pass. God keeps his promises, I'm sorry. Whether you like it or not. They were the recipients of what God had promised. When we talk about heavenly Canaan, here's what Jesus said before he left to go back to heaven. He'd been talking to the apostles and about his impending departure that he would die. And so Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. And whither I go, you know, and the way. You... Peter talks about the Christian, that was John 14, 1 through 3. But Paul, Peter talks about the Christian inheritance that we have in 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. And he said on the basis of the resurrection of Christ, from the dead. He says, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved where? In heaven for you. That's the promised land. That's heavenly Canaan. Every child of God has that promise of eternal life. Now, I would grant you that we have to live in a compliance to the will of God faithfully, faithfully, do you remember in Numbers 14 when the spies came back? The, the people began to murmur and the reason was because they didn't believe the report. They didn't believe that report that was given to them by Joshua and Caleb. Why? Because there was 10 other spies that were in opposition to it. Well, we're going we're gonna to believe these two men over those 10? I mean, there were 12 spies sent out. Two came back with a good report, 10 with a bad report. Well, who are we going to believe? They wanted to believe the ten spies. They didn't want to believe what Joshua and Caleb and what they surveyed in that land. And they said in verse 7 that it is truly an exceeding good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us a land which floweth with, <laughs> that's it, milk and honey. A wonderful, exceeding good land. Those ten spies were not so confident about that. And so the people began looking for somebody to lead them back to Egypt. Can you imagine that the very people that God had led forth out of Egyptian bondage, that these people had, that he had nurtured and cared for and protected every step of the way, that they're ready to go back to Egypt of all things. Well, we'd be better off going back into slavery. Are you kidding me? That's what they thought. God said in verses 11 and 12, How long will this people provoke me? How long will it be ere that they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. Yeah, don't... Don't... Get yourself into that position to see the wrath of God. All right? Some of these people did not get to go to Canaan. In fact, that first generation, they did not get to go. They forfeited the right because of their lack of faith. Who was the two guys that were able to go? 
Joshua and Caleb. Interesting, huh? We today have the promise of heavenly Canaan. And we look forward to being in a land where there's no more death, nor crying, nor pain, nor sorrow. For John said in Revelation 21.4, For the former things are passed away. But then here's the second thing that we see as we talk about the promise that was made dwelling in the land of Canaan. That preparation had to be made for the people of God to dwell in that land. In Joshua chapter 1, we find that God calls upon his servant to assume the the role of leadership on behalf of Israel. And he said in verse 2, he says, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. He reiterated that it was to Joshua, that land promise that he was going to give them, and that it was Joshua's task to lead them into that promised land. And in verse 10 and following, Joshua commands the officers of the people to inform the people to prepare for themselves provisions. Because he said in three days, we're going to cross that Jordan. All Joshua was saying is, in looking for Canaan, you better make preparation. You better get ready to go. Because we're going to be going. If you want to dwell in heavenly Canaan, then we like Israel, ancient Israel of old, we must make preparation, don't we? We must make preparation so that one day we can be together. And I have... I had to think about some two million people crossing the Jordan River. I think about all those people going into the land of Canaan. And God is caring for them. God wants you in heaven. And in order to get to heaven, you've got to make preparation. You've got to make sure that your life is what it ought to be. The Bible, in a very explicit way, tells us how we can make preparation to be in heaven one day. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 8, 24. Jesus said, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins, except you believe that not, or for if you believe not that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless you come to believe that I am, quote unquote, God's divine son, you are going to die in your sins. Do you remember what Peter said? He said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, there in Matthew 16, 16. We have to have that kind of conviction, don't we? And then we have to get out of the sinning business. We've got to repent. Jesus said in Luke 13, 3, he said, I tell you, nay, but except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And then the privilege is ours to confess the name of Jesus before others, to acknowledge that we believe that he is God's only son, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And then we're immersed in that watery grave for the remission of our sins so that we can contact the blood of Jesus. But you see, the blood of Christ is what washes those sins away. Christ shed his blood on Calvary in John 19, 34. And so Paul said in Romans 6, 3 and 4, this is how you illustrate that. He says, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also shall walk in newness of life. Did you hear it? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the three facts, the death, burial, and resurrection. And we portray that, what what Paul was saying there in Romans 6, 3, and 4. And so we come up out of that water, a new creation, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, Mark 16, 16. And so when we obey the gospel, 
God thus puts us into the church, into his kingdom. The Bible promises that we are to be faithful unto death and he will bestow bestow on us the crown of life. You see, when you look at Exodus chapter 6, about what God had planned to do for Israel, it was a great thing. I want you to think in, in our closing tonight that God has made plans for you. God has made plans for you and me for eternity. He's preparing for us this eternal abiding place called heaven, Canaan land, heavenly Canaan land, the promised land for you and I to have one day. He promised that. And as I quoted just a few moments ago, John 14, 1 through 4, I know that there's a place called heaven. And I know that one day, if I've been found faithful in obedience to the gospel that we just portrayed a few moments ago, that heaven will be my home. Heaven will be your home. If you're here not a Christian, then obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and then live faithfully unto the end. You might be here a child of God and you wandered off back into the world of sin. It can happen. We've seen it many times. But you can repent of that. Pray that God will forgive you. And our opportunity is tonight. Not to put it off any longer. As we sing this song of encouragement, 227, I want you to think about what the words of that song is teaching you. And make things right with God. As was in our prayer, tomorrow may be too late. As together we stand and sing.